0: Welcome to The Government Huddle with Brian Chidester, a new podcast from Government Marketing University. My entire career has been dedicated to marketing in the government space. And in the beginning, I never cared about the why. I was completely focused on the how. It was all about the tactics, the analytics, the ROI, rinse and repeat. Then I decided I wanted to understand these programs and technologies the same way our customers do. It opened up a whole new world for me. And that is what this show is about aligning the why with the how, taking a deep dive on current trends, making bold, educated predictions about the market, learning from expert guests and discovering innovative concepts on how to respond to all of this. So join us as we talk about all things government marketers need to know about today, tomorrow and beyond. Come on, let's huddle up. Our goal is to lead a sweeping transformation of the federal government's technology that will deliver dramatically better services for citizens, stronger protection from cyber attacks, and up to a trillion dollars in savings for taxpayers over the next 10 years. Over a trillion. We're embracing big change, bold thinking, and outsider perspectives to transform government Welcome back to The Government Huddle, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And in the United States, we have an important day coming up. No, I'm not talking about Thanksgiving as much as I'm looking forward to some pumpkin pie and whipped cream. I'm talking about the presidential election. There's certainly been a lot of coverage on Donald Trump and Joe Biden in the past year as we get ready to cast our votes. But one area that hasn't been covered as much as I would like is what their stances are on technology and innovation, especially as it pertains to government IT modernization. It directly impacts all of us. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. After navigating the transition into the pandemic, we all have a new normal that we're trying to understand. And after the first week in November and the presidential election is over, there could be another layer of complexity added on top of that. In many ways, the candidates have very different approaches to technology and innovation policy. Trump is focused more on reducing government barriers in the economy, including taxes and regulations that, among other things, limit innovation. The administration has taken this approach with a number of emerging technologies, including autonomous transportation systems, and AI, pushing for an innovation principle-based approach. Over the past few years, federal IT leaders have stressed the importance of making IT modernization and investments in innovation an integral part of agencies' missions, and more recently have called for increases to the Technology Modernization Fund in order to meet new demands in telework and delivery of government services. And while the Trump budgets have increased funding for research in some particular technology areas, especially artificial intelligence, Overall, they've sought to cut government support for research. While much of the focus of Biden's economic plan is on more traditional issues such as expanding healthcare and investing in physical infrastructure, the campaign has highlighted its support for significantly increased public investment in research and development and advanced production. Several Democrats in Congress have brought the legacy IT challenge center stage as it's made it difficult for agencies to scale up the delivery of aid to Americans. The $1 billion addition to the TMF for the new skinny version of the proposed pandemic relief bill, the HEROES Act, will likely not be enough to push agencies where they need to be technologically. So what will funding look like when the new budget is released next year? What priorities can we expect to be funded? And how can we align our budgets to take advantage of any shifts? To help us understand some fundamental differences of each potential administration and to help us navigate some of these questions, I've asked Francis Rose, host of the Government Matters television show, to join us. Francis, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks for coming on with us. Great to be with you, Brian. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot of conversations going on leading up to the presidential election, Francis, but before we get into that and kind of what it means to the government IT community, I have an important question I want to ask. As you know, Halloween's coming up and if I'm trick-or-treating at the Rose household, what type of candy am I getting?
1: You're gonna get a big bag of nothing, Brian. Um, I confess that I am probably the biggest Halloween Grinch in the world. (laughs) I don't like October, I don't like the winter, and I just have never been a big Halloween fan. I have a son that's uh, 20 years old, and so I used to go, I I would take him trick-or-treating so that I didn't have to deal with the kids that were coming to the house. I, I know, and as this is coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, I sound like this most sour old man in the world standing on my front lawn shaking my fist at kids, but <laughs> um halloween has just never been my bag so i very respectfully either make plans and go out for the night or i just turn my light off and uh let the kids uh, skip my place so i it's a total downer i know but fair enough
0: when when we go trick-or-treating with our kids we walk past a fair number of houses with their lights off so i totally understand but if if i could then what what candy bar are you going after when you're at this at the supermarket Um, I
1: am one of these weird uh, grain-free and sugar-free people, so I don't really even buy candy at the the supermarket. So my sweet treat of choice is SlimFast makes these keto fat bombs that are like peanut butter cups, and I'm sure that somebody that eats peanut butter cups on a regular basis would retch if they tried one of these things (laughs) but to me who hasn't had sugar at least intentionally for about 15 or 20 years they taste great and so that's kind of what i reach for when i'm looking for a candy type thing going on
0: you're making us all look bad francis
1: (laughs) no no i'm i'm realizing as i'm talking that i'm making myself sound like this weird guy that's kind of just sitting in the corner by himself at the social event so maybe (laughs) Maybe we should get to the government i t stuff, Brian, before I marginalize myself even more.
0: Yeah, let's do it. So you've had a lot of conversations with with government IT leaders, i t leaders, at least being back to when uh, george w. bush was was in office. and i'm not I'm not trying to call you old, but you've exposed you've been exposed <laughs> to a lot of differing priorities and policies. Are there any patterns you've seen between the Democratic and Republican administrations?
1: Um, veteran is the word that you're supposed to use in that context.
0: Um, Marinated. No,
1: I, um Well, that makes me sound like a dish, but which I, <laughs> I'm far from. But at any rate, no, I what you're getting at is is a good point. And one of the things that I like about the space that I live in and that I cover uh, for the program is, these the, the, the issues around government IT and the issues around government management, for the most part, uh especially the big pieces, are pretty nonpartisan. And what I've noticed in the Trump administration, the beginning years of the Trump administration, and issues like the president's management agenda that Margaret Weikert drove, and the IT modernization efforts that Suzette Kent drove. A lot of those were based on the things that their predecessors in the Obama administration had done, where they were, um, where they came into office and pretty much said, you know, these things seem to be working and making progress, and maybe we do a teeny course correction, but we don't rip it up and start over again because of some particular agenda item from the White House or other. And uh, thinking back to the beginning of the Obama administration, 2008. You know a lot of the things that karen evans had instituted as the um the wasn't federal cio then technically but performing that job uh, a lot of those things Vivek that kundra continued uh, and he obviously I- implemented a lot around data and the cloud and so on but those i would argue were built on the foundations of what karen and before her mark foreman had laid out so That's one of the neat things about this space. I think there's a continuity and an evolution of these items rather than what we see at other agencies where you could see from one administration to the next, a hard stop and a restart, even if they name it something different. um, A lot of times initiatives don't continue exactly the same way they did the previous administration. I, I don't think that's the case so much in the IT realm because there is First of all, you have the fact that the mission has to continue. You know, an agency can't Mm -hmm. just say, well, we're going to stop processing financial transactions for six months while we build a new financial management system. You've got to keep sending money out. So uh, I think that continuity is one of the things. If you're trying to look for cues about what might happen, say, if uh, Vice President Biden's elected or if uh, President Trump's reelected and a whole new wave of people come in. I'm not sure that there's a whole lot to change because the work that the administration has done, the Trump administration has done, has been pretty well regarded by people on both sides of the aisle
0: and uh,
1: has worked fairly well.
0: So I, I recently talked to Suzette and one of the things I asked her was if if a couple years ago the pandemic had hit and the government was forced to pivot as quickly as it did into, let's just say, a telework posture, um, th- that perhaps they would not near, been nearly as successful as they were this year, maybe three or four years ago. What would you, what would you say some of the key drivers were um, that maybe this administration was able to bring to make that happen? I know you touched on um, the previous administration obviously laying the groundwork, and I think, um, especially around cloud, I think that that was a big driver. But What have we seen the Trump administration then drive to make that pivot, um, I guess, as successful, if you want to call it successful, as it was um, from a telework perspective?
1: Well, first of all, yes, I think it's I think it's reasonable to call it successful. Um, Obviously, we heard stories of of pockets of problems at the very beginning, but. I think it's fair to say once we were three weeks or a month into this, and Suzette obviously knows the details of it more than I do. She knows from an insider perspective, and I'm just watching from the outside. But um, once we heard uh, about those kinds of pockets of problems, there were there were no widespread swaths of issues. And, and there were, in fact, some success stories that you can point to with the Defense Department in particular, and the fact that there... At one point, they only had, I think, 17% of their people in the building at any given time. And so um, I would say all of those things that I outlined a moment ago are contributors. If you think back to the OPM breach in 2015, one of the outgrowths of that was Tony Scott doing a, a cyber sprint where there was a very short period of time where agencies had to assess their current cyber postures and, and the tools that they had. And the results weren't pretty. But at least after that, inventory agencies knew what they had to address. And so, if you fast forward to 2016, um, and and the Trump administration coming in, he, uh, Tony was able to hand off to the IT team that was taking over. Suzette wasn't in at that point yet, but um, the Trump team that came in had a pretty clear vision of where the gaps were still in security postures, and then they could get CIOs in and say, what do we need to do to address these? And, and then you're right, coupling that with the success that agencies have had with their cloud transitions, um, they, that, um, that I think was really a, a key factor. The organizations that were not telework operational at the, or remote work operational when the pandemic started, were at least remote work capable enough because I don't know about you, i have i have not heard of any major agencies or bureaus that were incapacitated for any extended period of time because of the pandemic, and that to me is a minor success story you know that's the uh, that that's the good news that doesn't get covered because it's not sexy you know everything worked it's not really a great headline, but that's essentially. For in most cases, what we had. So I would say it's that that evolution, that continual process of improvement that has happened through both the last and the current administration that has really paved the way for the success that the agency
0: I'm I'm glad you brought up Tony Scott because I think he's a really good example of what the Obama administration kind of started to spearhead was, a closer partnership between the private sector and the public sector. You could look back at the um, the Defense Department and Silicon Valley partnership uh, that kind of brought them closer. Um, Tony Scott's background has a lot of private sector experience at some really large companies. I'm, I'm really impressed with some of the leadership he was able to bring to uh, the government during his tenure. And the Trump administration, uh, the president seemed to double down on this private sector partnership with government. And it seems like we're seeing increased efficiencies in certain areas in government. We can we can speak to telework, right? Like we just mentioned, cloud migration also seems to be a priority of several CIOs right now. So can can you point to something that you see an advice? this can you see this being something the Biden administration would be continuing? Is this this close partnership and close tie to the private sector?
1: Well, I. I can't imagine why they wouldn't because it's demonstrated to work and, and it was demonstrated to work in the administration for which the new president would have been the vice president. And so I would, I would say yes. I would, I would suggest that I would think the acceleration would continue if for no other reason than an admission now from, um, from leaders of administrations of both parties that they should hire the people who are the experts at stuff and help them grow the cadre of people inside the government who are experts at stuff, but let the people who are experts be the leaders. And, you know, you see this with the Centers of Excellence effort that the Trump administration has fostered at the General Services Administration. They're managing it, and then they're working with um, organizations in a number of different agencies. Well, that works being performed by vendors that work is not uh, they didn't go on hiring sprees at agriculture and hud and, and these other organizations and develop all of this technology in-house they uh, followed a similar model to what the obama administration did with 18f where you know 18f does consulting for the agencies yes and there was some worry when they stood up and and usds some worry when they stood up is this going to are these people going to soak up all our business well no there's so much that has to happen and you know this brian from your work in in working with the federal government there's there's more work than you could ever hire government employees to do and so the the vendor community is going to continue to be number one the resource that government agencies draw on to know what's over the horizon. I use that phrase in interviews a lot because we can see what's on the horizon. And and I think agencies can see what's on their horizons as far as their mission delivery. But they're focused on that and they have enough work to do to do that. And they rely on these companies to help them understand what's beyond the horizon. When they go up over the crest of that hill, what do they see and what do they need to know to be prepared for it? And that's, I don't think, ever going to be the place that the agency should be focusing its attention. And I think agencies understand that and they're comfortable with that. And for that reason, does, I, I think the name on the administration doesn't matter as far as how the agencies will continue to view the necessity of partnering with, with companies in the private sector.
0: This is probably something you've you've heard from a lot of your guests on the show. And as I've been having conversations with people, it seems like the major trend is exactly what you said. Government leaders um, in in all agencies, in civilian and DOD, they're looking for true partners to come in and kind of the way I the way I term it is to jump in the foxhole with them, help them understand their challenges, um, help them come up with creative solutions to their challenges. Um, But they really want that partnership. They don't want to just be sold to. Um, they, they want you to understand their challenges and really be uh, true partners. So I think that, that understanding the horizon and what's coming is a really good example of that. Um, one of the challenges I know in, in government that we've seen, uh, I mean, I think it doesn't matter who's president, it's, it's just always going to be a major challenge and even more so going forward is cybersecurity. It was very much top of mind during this administration, this presidency, um, and I'm curious to understand how you see uh, both Biden and Trump uh, exploring this challenge, and especially as it pertains to the CMMC program. This is a program that has seemed to stall a little bit, despite a lot of momentum early on. Do you see it continuing in both administrations?
1: Yeah, I think that depends on what kind of leadership we wind up getting at the Defense Department. What it what it is clear to me from the vendors that I talked to, from the 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 companies that are trying to sell into this space and to the you know when you go down away from the OSD level and you start to talk to acquisition folks at in the individual services and in the fourth estate everybody agrees every everybody understands that understanding what the security of the supply chain is is going to be critically important and and if anything the government has waited far too long to do something. Is there a universal agreement that CMMC is the right thing? Of course not. And, and is it possible that a new administration could tweak it? Of course. But I, a, any vendor that thinks, well, this is a fad and it's so close to the end and it's going to go away, I think is really, really mistaken because the the broad understanding in the security community and the broad understanding in the intelligence and espionage community is that the main reason that China has been able to build its technological and military growth so quickly in the last decade has been because they've robbed us blind, um, IP wise. And, and the, As the security of the Pentagon has improved and as the security of the big primes has improved, the bad guys, whether it's China or, or others, have started to go further down the supply chain. And if you think about the very bottom of the supply chain, you know, that small company of 12 to 15 people that's working out of an industrial space in the Midwest somewhere, what are the resources that they have? to withstand a cyber attack from a nation state. And, and yet, because they're interacting with their sub, the, the company they sub to, and that sub dealing with the company they sub to, and all the way up the chain, there's still tremendous vulnerabilities. So I think any anybody that thinks that there just won't be anything anymore is sadly mistaken. I just think it depends so much on what the leadership, you know, in Ellen Lord's job and in David Norquist's job and so on, and, and then in the technology jobs, uh, I think it just depends on what they decide the right level of protection is that's necessary versus how to maintain the level of growth that they want in those non-traditional uh, companies in, in that cadre of companies in the industrial base. It's, it's, it's a huge balance, and mm-hmm. uh, but but there's no way
0: that we're going back to where we were in a pre-Cyber Awareness Day. Yeah, I would think that in, in, in some of my conversations I've had with uh, with Katie Arrington and understanding that this is probably something that is not only going to mature within DOD, but could be spread into the civilian environments, right, to defend beyond just the defense industrial base.
1: Well, it's already happened. Um, uh, Keith Nakasone at GSA uh, says that, CMMC language will start to be incorporated into some of their government-wide acquisition contracts. And the main reason for that is DOD is one of their biggest customers. And so it's, it's a customer demand issue. And so I think you're going to see there's, uh, I think it's the STARS Three small business GWAC already has a clause written into it that says we can include this language potentially in individual deal. So yeah, it's, it's common. And, and again, whether it's a specific language that stands with CMMC now, whether it's the accreditation board, the way that it looks now, all of that, who knows? I don't know that anybody can really predict that. But yes, some kind of control is going to live on, there's no doubt in my mind.
0: So you touched on resource constraint of uh, say a small vendor or or if the smallest vendor at the end of the uh, defense industrial base. But um, when I think of that, I it brings digital equity to mind. Um, And uh, when we looked at what the pandemic did at the state and local levels, I think digital equity was something that was absolutely top of mind for me when I'm thinking of say the resources that can be brought to bear in New York City versus some small city in the middle of the country. Um, and the way their citizens are being able to be served by their government in a in a crisis situation is just very different. Um, and at the state and local level, I think they're really struggling to fill some of the technology gaps that COVID highlighted. Uh, President Trump seems to have taken a, a more hands-off approach to federal investments to kind of bolster these more regionalized parts of the country. Is that something you think a Biden administration would continue, or do you, do you see him looking to bring federal funding to support some of the tax revenues lost um, with these small and, and localized municipalities?
1: Well, certainly, the, um, certainly the, the stimulus bill that Congress is talking about now, one of the big sticking points is that Republicans would prefer to not uh, send money to the states and localities To help them make up their budget deficits um and make close the holes in their budgets that this has caused and the cares act that the the uh heroes act sorry the there's so many of them i've lost track Mm -hmm. um the heroes act that the house passed back in the summer included that kind of money so I, i i think that issue is probably more likely to be determined by what kind of stimulus winds up coming out of Congress when and if that happens, rather than some decision that one administration or the other will make. Congress, of course, is the uh, the purse holder. And so I would tend to think that that money winds up getting stuck in some vehicle that either President Trump or President Biden wants to or finds it necessary to sign. And if that money goes anywhere, that's the the way that it winds up going there, not so much into a conscious decision or or action by a president of one party or the other.
0: I want to pull back and and give a a quick example from the Obama administration, just because it seems like that is most closely aligned to maybe what we can see from from Vice President Biden. I think anyone who's navigated the FedRAMP process can attest to the fact that it can be rigorous. I think that's probably an understatement, but. It's gotten a lot better, uh, I think, in the past few years. Um, it, some say kind of more streamlined to support not only agency obligations, but the, the way CSPs need to uh, navigate this process. And I also believe that's one of the reasons why we've seen more government agencies really adopting the spirit of cloud first, which was ushered in by um, Barack Obama. How much of a priority do you see that being for, um, for Vice President Biden for this trend to continue? one of the things that i think was particularly effective in the obama
1: administration and that the trump team also did and i'm sure you got into uh with suzette her uh background to to doing transformations and and so it was kind of a natural fit for her to continue but the the strategic puzzle makes more sense for whichever is the next administration than thinking okay we have these five tools and how do we fit them all together um the analogy that i've kind of used is you when you do or when i do a, a jigsaw puzzle i put the border pieces together on the outside first and then fit the other pieces on the inside and so i i think that's kind of the vision that i have when i'm thinking about whatever the next administration does is they do kind of the big the big border first and they figure out then how they want to fill in the pieces to get to where they want to be in 2022 or 2025 when the next term of whoever the next president begins.
0: No, and that makes complete sense. I would imagine another another piece of that, if you want to call it border, would align with um, some of the, the data initiatives that has been um, a key part of what seems like this administration. I know Su- Suzette has um, often spoken to how important uh, government data is. I know in the Barack Obama administration, he not only prioritized open data, but um, they were also a found- or made the U.S. a founding member of the Open Government Partnership, which is all around making data openly available to support innovation. Um, With the importance that this brings, do you think this is, uh, data is going to be a a continuing trend um, for prioritization for both candidates? Oh, absolutely.
1: I mean, everybody of every stripe that you talk to just goes on and on about how important data is. And this, this, again, the things that you mentioned were the building blocks that made the federal data strategy possible. And if you talk to somebody like Nick Hart from the Data Coalition, the Data Foundation, same idea. You know, he would tell you these building blocks that the administrations are undertaking are important to get the next one to the next thing. And uh, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've had this conversation with folks regarding cybersecurity. The whole nature of the cybersecurity discussion has changed in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, we were still digging moats around our networks and trying to keep the bad guys from crossing the moat and everybody knows now that's ridiculous and you know we didn't know better it's not that the people that did that weren't smart it's just that we didn't understand what the nature of the threat landscape would look like moving forward and and now we have the benefit to understand that it's more of a uh securing the home where you you have a safe for the really valuable stuff and you put locks on the doors and windows for the stuff that's not as valuable. And um, so from a data perspective, the idea that, again, the idea that we would think about any one of these pieces individually is I think maybe not the most productive way to look at it. I think how all of these pieces fit together in a broader transformation strategy is important. And I. I think I'm giving Suzette correct credit for saying at one point that that's how she wanted to change the uh, the the nature of the conversation to get away from modernization and and because that has an end point and transformation doesn't because you're constantly trying to iterate constantly trying to improve and um, that's. I think going to be the way that the smart agencies and the smart vendors who want to serve those agencies will think about it moving forward. Not so much, how are we going to help you with this one piece? Maybe if you specialize in data, that's where you're going to help an agency the most, but what's the point? What's the mission capability that you're going to drive and how do you fit into this mosaic of of solutions Whatever the mission delivery issue is that the agency is having and not so much, well, how are we going to help you fulfill the data strategy or how are we going to help you um, meet this goal in the president's management agenda? One of the best things that I've seen in the last 15, 14, 15 years that I've been in this space is a willingness and, in fact, an eagerness to get away from the compliance mindset of any kind. And get to mission delivery. And I think that's, that's really great. I think that when I first came into the space in the mid 2000s or aughts or whatever we call them now, what I couldn't understand as somebody who knew kind of how the legislative branch oversaw the agencies but didn't understand as much about the executive branch and how it operated. One of the things I was disconcerted to see at the beginning was, geez, Congress has agencies doing all these things. They have to check this off and that off and the other thing. And there is a broad understanding now among the Hill and the executive branch agencies that that's not the point. And any way that we can get away from that is useful, is good. And now I see organizations that are saying how – here's the problem that we have to solve. How do we use data to solve it? How do we use advanced technology to solve it? How do we, et cetera, et cetera, rather than how can we use some AI? We should get some AI. We should get some artificial intelligence and we should apply that to something around here. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's I think, uh, a compliance mindset that has been demonstrated to not work well. and. And so that's why I think that thinking about all of these individual things as pieces of a puzzle is going to be the most useful for agencies and then thereby also the most useful for organizations that want to sell to those agencies.
0: And I absolutely agree that when you look at transformation, it's not something, it's not not an end goal. No government organization in the U.S. or, or anywhere in the world is going to say, okay, if we just get here. We're, we're good, we can stop doing whatever we need to do, stop iterating. It's always going to be a journey and tying it back to what you had said earlier on in the conversation, that journey is something that isn't going to change dramatically by administration, because each organization within the government has their own mission that they're driving towards, their own, um, I hate to say end goals, but th- their own um, milestones they're, they're trying to get to. And an administration can inform it from and support policy and helping them get there. But I think ultimately that's going to continue to keep the, that transformation drive moving in the right direction. Um, So, and this conversation has been really fun to have. I hate to, I hate to have to wrap it up here, but any final thoughts you have, um, you want to leave the audience with today? No, I just,
1: I, I, I'm really grateful for you taking some time and to, to talk and, and for asking me to be on the show. I think you, Uh, I I think you do a great job. I have not heard every episode, but I really enjoy your conversations. And I I think the final thing that I would leave people with is I, I went back to 2009 and then I went back to 2016 and just looked at the nature of the conversations that I was having with people about transition then. And what I found was that even in 2016, 2017, when people were pretty shaken up and not knowing what to expect, the outcomes for the areas that we've talked about today, contracting and information technology in particular, wound up not being as earth-shaking as I think people expected them to be. And so I guess the final thought that I would leave you and your listeners with is, Maybe try not to worry about it so much. I mean, the worst case scenario is either is that we have either an administration that's already in place and will continue with some of the positives that we've talked about in this program so far today. Or we'll have an administration led by somebody who's kind of been there before and who has a cadre of people that either formally or informally he's able to call on to say, what do we do next? And in in my view, that leaves us in a pretty positive space to continue the momentum that we've seen over the last 12 to 15 years in the next four.
0: Thanks again for the time, Francis. And don't forget to check out Government Matters weeknights at 8 p.m. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, and now on Amazon Music. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ChittisterAB. Don't forget to go vote, guys. Bye for now.